Bibles to the book of Acts for the last time for a while, at least, as we conclude our study of this great history of the establishment of the church. We started this series a little over a year ago in October of 2015, and my desire for us as a church as we journeyed through this book was to show us how the Lord intends His church to bear witness to Him in the world. I want us to look at it and and learn from the various situations, circumstances, opposition of how this will come about. I wanted us to have our expectations calibrated, how the Lord works and how He uses imperfect people like you and me to spread the good news of salvation. I wanted us to see how it is that Jesus continues to work. He continues to teach, even as He sits on His throne in heaven, at a place where we cannot see Him with our eyes. How do we as a church continue to move forward in confidence that Jesus is on the throne, that He is with us, that He is guiding us, that He is working just as much And I would say at an even greater level than when he was physically here on earth. How does that happen? Well, the book of Acts shows us. I wanted us to learn that the gospel ministry takes endurance, takes steadfastness, and that the fruit of our labor often comes out of hardship and opposition. It comes slowly. Yes, there are points in the book of Acts where it seems as if it's that it explodes, but as things begin to settle, it's just the hard plowing that keeps moving forward, the faithful ministry, and then there's fruit. I wanted us to see that because we are part of this story. The things that we have seen in the book of Acts were just a, a, a short or a small picture of what God is doing throughout the world. In fact, even in our text this morning, we're going to see believers popping up in a place where Paul has yet to come because work was going on even beyond the one apostle that we've been looking at for the last few months. And that's true for us even today. There's more going on than just at Oak Park at 1111 Allison Lane. The Lord is using churches like ours that are faithfully preaching the gospel, faithfully loving the brothers, and faithfully reaching out to the saints all over the world, places we do not even know about, churches and people we've never seen. But He's doing this on a global scale, and I want us to see that through the book of Acts. And I want us to see kind of that the Lord is is working, But he does it through sometimes unexpected circumstances. And the reason I want us to see that in particular is because in our culture, here in America, you and me, our culture expects things to happen at a snap, don't we? We expect everything to happen like my TV dinner in the microwave. And then somehow we expect it to be as good as delivery. You know, it never works. We want it to be with ease. If anything gets in the way, we're like, well, it must not be God's will. 
Why? Because you had to sweat? Because it actually had a little bit of effort involved? We do that in all kinds of things. Well, this must not be the job for me. It was hard today. No. We're looking here at the, at the book of Acts, and we're, and, and we're seeing that God works even when the storms are against us. I want us to see how God works because we often think things happen because of how great we are. Oh, if I am awesome, I will get things done. If I just trust in myself, things will happen. Well, that's not what we see in Acts. No, what we've learned through our study over the past year or so is that power comes through humility, that strength comes through weakness, and life comes through death. After all, the, pro the message that we proclaim, is it not a crucified Savior? Is it not a, a crucified Messiah who died but who is now exalted in power? That is the message that we give to the world. We're preaching a bloody cross, but that through that death, that there comes life. And actually, guess what? What we've seen through the book of Acts is that we embody the cross. We bear the cross. We follow the path of Christ. And just as Christ's greatest moment of suffering was his greatest triumph and victory, so we might find that that is true for us as a church. We began to have these expectations calibrated at the very beginning of the book. So if you're at Acts chapter 28, I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 1 to begin with. I want us to start where we began and realize that by the end we're really at the same place, just it's on a bigger scale. Expectations were being calibrated from the very first verses. And in particular, this comes with a question that was posed by Jesus' disciples in verse 6. Look at what they asked the Lord. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is the question that was facing the people of God. Are you now going to establish the kingdom? Are we now going to see it? You've died. You've raised. We're expecting to see some results, Jesus. Is it now? You ever feel like that? Lord, are you, is it now you're going to do this? And although Jesus had been instructing them about the kingdom for 40 days, they still weren't fully aware, how is all this going to pan out? How is all this going to come together? They're, they're held in some sense a mystery. But I want you to take note of Jesus' answer to them. He doesn't skirt the issue. He corrects their thinking in one way, but then he explains how this is going to go. He said to them, verse 7, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You're not going to know the timeline. That's true for you and me as well. You're not going to know the timeline by which the Lord works. We're praying that he works through a fall festival Saturday, aren't we not? But we don't know the timeline by which that effect might kick in. We trust these words. Jesus goes on. But this is what you do need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is what we need to know and what the disciples needed to know. 
that the restoration of the kingdom, Christ's kingdom plan, his establishment of his reign and righteousness on earth is going to come about through the spirit-empowered proclamation of the gospel until it has gone to the ends of the earth. How long is that going to take, Lord? It's not for you to know times or seasons. Just do the work. You see that? Just do the work, and I am going to give you my spirit that you might be empowered to do it. Now, we've seen this through Acts. Acts chapter 2, the church's birth, the Holy Spirit is poured out, the gift that has been promised in centuries past in the Old Testament has now arrived, and the church is birthed in Jerusalem. And by the time we come, and you can flip there now, to Acts chapter 28, we find ourselves with Paul at the gates of the end of the world, the gateway to the ends of the earth. He is in Rome. And the gospel has been spreading. Just as Jesus says, his disciples have witnessed to him in Jerusalem. They have witnessed in the greater region of Judea. They have gone out to Samaria. And now they have journeyed away from the center of Jerusalem. And now it is all the way in Rome. The greater empire. The center of the known world at that time. And I want you to look at how the book ends. We looked at how it began. Now notice what happens. Verse 30, Paul says this of Acts chapter 28. Paul doesn't say this, but Luke gives us a description. He, meaning Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. What was he doing? Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You might say, that sounds a little anticlimactic. I thought by the end of the story, your kingdom would come. But here we are, just as Jesus says, you will not know the times or the seasons, but you will be my witnesses. And so the book of Acts ends on an open note. In fact, we don't even get to his trial scene before Nero or one of his officials. All we get to is that he's arrived at Rome. He's arrived at the gateway to the ends of the earth. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. And I have carried you from these little 11 disciples, from verse, chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to this point. And the disciples are multiplying. They're multiplying. And we've seen a pattern by which this is going to continue and continue until the Lord returns. And so what we need to see here, and really with these last few verses of Acts, we're left with an example to follow. A very clear one. A very simple example. But yet it is with great power and might when we follow it. As David Peterson, a faithful Bible scholar, writes, the conclusion of Acts challenges readers to consider how they themselves will continue the story of the gospel's progress. That's where I want to challenge us this morning. We're in the story. The gospel has progressed just as it has in Acts in the various circumstances and, and, and settings and people groups. And it has progressed all the way to 2016 as we are gathering doing the very same thing. And it isn't really 
spectacular, is it? Some of you probably are like, oh gosh, it's already 10.30. I got to go to church. Hopefully that's not when you woke up. But anyway, <laughs> oh, I got to go. It's the same thing every Sunday. Hopefully it's not. But there's a steadfastness to it. There's an endurance to it. And this is God's plan. So as we consider Acts chapter 28 this morning, as we close this story, it's really just opening it up to our story. And this is our challenge. Will we follow the example left for us here? Specifically with Paul, eagerly welcoming everyone. That's number one. That's point number one. Eagerly welcoming everyone. Point number two, boldly proclaiming Jesus. And point number three, trusting in his power. That's what we see in these concluding verses. Nothing spectacular. In fact, Paul is living on his own dime under Roman guard. And yet, the gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed. We're left with a pattern of ministry which enables us to proclaim this great hope of the Bible to everyone. So with that in mind, let's begin our focus on the fact that we're called to welcome all. We are called to eagerly welcome all. And I want us to see that in the fact that in our passage, Paul even details in some sense God's plan to reach both Jew and Gentile. Look in verse 17. Paul has arrived in Rome. He's been there three days. And Luke recalls and says that he called together the local leaders of the Jews. Paul's arrived here. And just as he does in every city, you notice the pattern, he, 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 he goes to the synagogue. Well, this time he can't go to the synagogue. He's on Roman arrest. He's on house arrest. He's literally chained to a Roman guard. You've got to stay here. So what does he do? He says, can you all come to me? And these Jewish leaders come to him. And as a result, he begins to explain to them why he's here in Rome. And he's really desirous here to get in front of the negative publicity that's going out about him. He wants to know, hey, before my trial, before Nero, I need to make sure that I've at least given a, my voice to those who might stand up against me. The Jews have opposed me in every city, so I'm going to come there, and I'm going to let them know from my mouth, hey, I'm not guilty. I haven't been found guilty. In fact, the Roman officials have tried to release me. And he begins to tell them this, but notice in verse 22 what they say. They say, or verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you. And none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoke, spoken any evil about you. Whew. Even though it took Paul a year on a ship ride, he was able to get there faster than the news could spread. Nothing has come. But notice in verse 22 what they have heard. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regards to this sect, and they're talking about Christians, that we know everywhere is spoken against. We haven't heard anything negative about you, but we have been hearing negative things about your movement. 
We hear that it is turning cities upside down everywhere, and we want to know, what do you think about this, Paul? They want to know, who are these people who claim to be heirs of the promises of Israel? Who are these people who claim to be kingdom people, the people who claim that they know who the Messiah is? Tell us, who are these? And so Paul does what he always does, verse 23. He preaches about Jesus, and he opens up the scriptures, and he begins opening up from the book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and he begins explaining to them that the Christ must come, that he must suffer, and that he would rise. And he does the same from the prophets. And he tells them, these things have happened. And this is why you're hearing about this movement. This movement you call a sect is actually the true people of God. This is consistent with the preaching in Acts. If you think about Peter on the day of Pentecost, let me tell you that this Christ whom you have crucified is both Lord and Christ. He's ascended to the throne. He sits on the seat of David and he is reigning. And what happened? Hearts were pierced. And they said, what must we do to be saved? Well, we don't know exactly what words came out of these Jewish leaders that met with Paul and the gathering crowd that came to hear him. But as usual, some believe. Verse 24, some were convinced by what he said. That's what we should expect. But we also should expect the the other response. But others disbelieved. Verse 25, a disagreement arose among themselves. And they departed after Paul had made one statement. And this is where I want us to see as, as God's plan for everyone comes in view. Okay, And why this should motivate us to be welcoming to all people. This is the one statement that he made that says, we're done. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What's going on here? Paul speaks to probably the vast majority of those hearers who came to listen about this sect known as Christianity, and they disbelieve. And he says, this was prophesied that this would happen to you from the prophet Isaiah. The message of God's deliverance would come, and you would have blind eyes, you would have hard hearts, and you would have uh, deaf ears. But let me tell you that this is the means by which this salvation, this deliverance, this hope of Israel has been sent to the Gentiles. And let me tell you, they will listen. How's that work? How's that God's plan? Well, I want us just to briefly go over to the next book in the book of Romans. I want you to see how this is God's plan. Let me kind of lay it out for you. The message would go to the Jew first, then the Greek. You see that throughout the scriptures. 
but that the Jew, by and large, would reject it and the means by which that it would propel the gospel to people like you and me. And Paul addresses this plan of God in Romans chapter 11. And I just want to draw your attention to verses 11 through 15. And I want you to hear how he begins to explain what we see happening in Acts chapter 28. Romans 11, verse 11, Paul says, So I ask, did they, meaning Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? Here's the question he's, he's, he's posing. Have, has the nation of Israel, by and large, rejected the gospel in order to be rejected forever? And he says, by no means. This does not mean that God is done with the Jewish people. Rather, through their trespass, meaning the rejection of Christ and the gospel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But what happens through that? So that is to make Israel jealous. So you and I, I don't know any Jews here, we receive the promises that are theirs and that God is by some means going to use the Gentile world receiving the gospel as a means that will provoke Israel to jealousy and open her eyes, to open her ears, to soften the heart that she would turn. He goes on. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, us, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For I'm speaking to you Gentiles. You could say, I'm speaking to you, Oak Park. And as much as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? I think this means that Israel will all come to Christ by the end of the age and the resurrection will occur. That will be the climactic event. God has flipped the tables from the Old Testament to the New. The Old Testament, Gentiles didn't hear anything about the gospel. You might have a few who believe. But it was Israel who heard the message and the blessings were upon them. But in the New Testament, their deliverer comes and the tables are turned. Which tells us you can't put God in a box. He defied their expectations. Paul summarizes it in 11.25. He says, lest you be wise in your own eyes, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Why do I tell you that? Because what we see here is God's plan right now is to reach the nations. That doesn't mean that Jews don't believe. Some do. But if you notice, Christianity is not by and large Jewish, right? This is why. God has sent a judgment upon the nation as a whole, a partial judgment. Most will reject the gospel until the mission to the Gentiles is complete. Well, when's that going to happen? It's not for you to know times and seasons. By which God has fixed by his own authority, we just continue to proclaim. But here's where that hope comes in. They will listen. Say, how do I know that? Well, look at this room. People who are not Jews, are listening. And this is happening all over the world. 
And this leads us to see that God's mercy is extended to the gospel, and we are to hear that the, God, the nations are ripe to listen. They're ripe for the gospel. And I want us to see this back in Acts chapter 28 as we come to verse 1. This is when Paul's on his way to Rome. Last Sunday we saw the shipwreck and how the Lord preserved them and brought them safely to land. Well, where did they land? Acts 28 verse 1. We were brought safely through and we learned that the island was called Malta. And the native people showed us unusual kindness. Your Bible might have a footnote, maybe giving you an alternate translation of what native people means. It means barbarians. The barbarians showed us unusual kindness. Barbarians were uncultured from a Greco Roman perspective, they were foreigners especially a person from a culture regarded as primitive or uncivilized. You know who I think of? You ever watch Conan the Barbarian? <laughs> yeah. You don't hang out with those people. They'll chop your head off. You got all these kind of, these people are dangerous. They're, they're crazy. That's why it says they showed us unusual kindness. We landed on an island full of barbarians. That's the set for a movie. But it was they, they were kind. They were, this was unexpected. What did they do, verse 2? They kindled a fire to meet their needs because it was cold and rainy. They welcomed us. Verse 7, their leader of the whole island of that region received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Look in verse 10. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Why is Luke giving us this account of this strange encounter with barbarians? Because the gospel's going to these unknown people, and they're ripe for the gospel. It's not as scary as you thought. That doesn't mean there aren't people who will kill, kill Christians. But doesn't mean all people you don't know will kill you. You might be surprised by those people you welcome. That they might actually show you unusual kindness. And I think for us as Christians, we often don't, we will give lip service. Oh yeah, we welcome everybody, but it shows up in our actions. And I think the reason that we don't really welcome all is because we're scared of what we don't know. We've got a picture of those people. They're barbarians to us. What would it be like to go into their home? Or what would it be like to have them in our home? Or what would it be like if they all came into our church? And that makes us really nervous because it won't be as clean as we like it. Our ministries won't just function smoothly without a, a problem. Because when you put different people in the mix, there's clashes. What we see in Acts is that God often saves the least likely suspects, haven't we? The people that we think are worthy of salvation often aren't the ones who believe. It's not the Jews who believe, it's the Gentiles. It's not the wealthy but the poor, 
It's the outcast of society. It's the prostitute. It's the one trapped in witchcraft. It's the Philippian jailer. It's the places you and I would never dream to go. And Luke is saying, yeah, they may seem like barbarians, but you might find some unusual kindness when you get there. And they might listen. Who are these unknown people for you and I? Whom you would never find yourself associating with? Would it be the Muslim? Because you're fearful they're actually a terrorist? Maybe it's the atheist because you think they're all angry and mean. Maybe it's the homosexual because you're fearful somehow you're going to get infected too. Or it's the foreigner. All these people running into our country, mooching off our goods. Is that how you view them? Those might be the very people the Lord is bringing, regardless of the political mindset. Think of it as a gospel mindset. Our priority is to welcome all, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. Leave that to the government. I have my views, but I'm a Christian first. And this is why we're doing this giant cookout called the Fall Festival. Because by and large, none of us hang out with the people in this neighborhood. And it's pushing some of you, if you arrive there, to go knock on those doors and say, I would love to see you here. Why? Because they're not like you. But those might be the very people that the Lord may seek to save. I look at that apartment complex across um, Allison Lane, just up the road, filled with Hispanics. Who's going to go? Who's going to bring them in? Oh, there's too much complication. What if, you know, what are we going to get caught up in, in, in different areas of language barriers? And, and what are we going to do about, uh, you know, safety? And, and we raise up all these questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Just go. Right now, we're just trying to set up one means to make it really easy for us. We'll set up an event with free food and we'll tell the neighborhood you can come. That's no different than what we expect each of you to do as individuals. I'll open up my home and you can come. Really, what's the heart of the fall festival? It's to put on a big scale what we hope you can do on a little scale. A little scale maybe is your community group, wherever the Lord has you. To be hospitable. This isn't about our little huddle and everything's clean and neat. This is about saying, we have open doors, come in. Why? Because this is God's plan. The gospel has gone out, and some will listen. So let's take them up on that. Okay, we'll open the doors. That means you must actually want them here. Whoever them are, right? Therefore, with this principle in mind, to eagerly welcome all... We must then boldly proclaim Christ. This isn't a, we put on a show, everybody comes in, and we've done our job. That's where I think much of evangelicalism has gone astray. 
Oh, we will create a context that everybody feels welcome, and part of that welcoming means we don't really open up the Bible. We don't tell them what it means. We don't, we don't share Christ and, and call people to repentance and faith. But what we see in Acts over and over again is a boldness to proclaim the gospel, even when it looks like, oh, this isn't going to go well. I'm looking at a crowd who just crucified Jesus, Acts 2, with Peter, and I'm going to get up and say, you crucified the Messiah. That would be intimidating. But yet that is the means by which the Lord saw to reach a people. We go just seeing the church in Jerusalem, chapter 4, verses 29 through 31, just listen. They're praying. This is what the church is praying, and I, I hope we're praying like this. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you pray that? Oh, Lord, as opposition might be out there, as my own fears keep me crippled to go out, Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness to speak your gospel. church is scattered. Acts chapter 8 verse 4, and now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It happens on a one-on-one basis where, basis where Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch are sitting in a carriage and he opens up the scriptures and he says, hey yes, this prophet Isaiah, he's talking about Jesus. It happens when Peter goes to the household of Cornelius, an Italian uh, 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 a centurion who has a, a, an army of men. These people aren't supposed to believe the gospel, but yet as I was preaching, Peter says, they, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they confessed Jesus as Lord. It happens in Acts chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas are sent out from the church in Antioch and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. It happens when Paul arrives at Athens in a, in a world filled with idols and, te- and the temples. All kinds of paganism around them. And he says, let me tell you about the one who rose from the dead. And now it happens in Rome as Paul is literally chained to a Roman guard. That's not the type of event that gets on TV. Oh, come see the prisoner. But yet... And it's probably not in gobs of people coming, but slowly some come to him. And the believers in that church says, hey, come, let me tell you about this one Jesus. Let me introduce you to the Apostle Paul who has seen the risen Christ. And he opens up the scripture and he teaches them. We do this on Sunday morning, right? I come, I open up the scripture, or Pastor Jamin comes and opens up the scripture, and we preach. And we say, any of you can come. And part of that's on us to say, I'm inviting. I'm I'm saying, come, come, come. Hear the message of hope. Brothers and sisters, Acts tells us that gospel ministry isn't all that complicated. Be kind to people and tell them about Jesus. That's it. Leave the results all up to God. That's all we're to do. And we're to do it with boldness like we believe it. 
In Acts, it's always the Word that does the work, isn't it? It's the Word that abounds. It's the Word that pierces hearts. It's the Word that spreads. It's the Word that saves. And the Word is never watered down. It pierces. It opens up hearts. And so we go, and some of you are gifted enough to do this. You can open up your Bibles and you can share. But for those of you who say, you know what, that just isn't my gift. I don't know how to do it. That doesn't mean you don't share. You just invite. Let me take you to the place that this is done so that you may hear just as I have. And just as we've seen throughout Acts, our expectations should be calibrated. Most will not believe, but some will. But some will. And to do this is going to require us to faithfully trust him, isn't it? That's the bottom line. We have to just trust him. Trust that this is the plan. We don't have to resort to gimmicks. We trust the simple plan of preaching. And notice how this comes across trusting, uh, trusting his power, trusting his, his, uh, in Christ. Paul does this, verse 31, without hindrance. I want, you to show you, see, I want to show you how I get there, faithfully trusting him. Do you notice the irony Paul's a prisoner, yet he's ministering without hindrance. I don't know about you, but if, if I were on house arrest, chained to the wall, or at least with an ankle bracelet that says, if you leave the property, you'll be thrown in jail, you can't leave, I would consider that, man, the Lord's hindered me from ministering the gospel in Jeffersonville. That's the situation that Paul's in, but it's recorded as not a hindrance. Paul writes to the Philippians while he's in this situation, and notice what he says to them. Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and he's talking about his imprisonment, has really served to advance the gospel. There's that, it doesn't happen quite exactly as what we expect. We think, oh, if there's more persecution, that might hinder us, but it actually might fuel it. Opposition, we think, is bad, but yet it might fuel it. What is happening? Paul tells the Philippians, I found that because of my imprisonment, the other believers have become emboldened. They've seen my faithfulness, and now they're not ashamed of the gospel. Paul, writing later in his second imprisonment, he's writing to young Timothy. He's handing off the baton as he knows that, that Paul's life is about to end, and Timothy is shrieking from the gospel. He is tempted to abandon this ministry because he knows there's a lot of pressure. But Paul says this to Timothy to comfort him. He says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But you know what he says as he closes? But the word of God is not bound. Do we believe that? I don't know. Maybe, maybe we look at our church and we say, you know what? I wish we had more of that, more of these people, more of these resources. If we only had this in our building, if we would only, 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 and we think that somehow that if we had that, that the word of God would be unleashed. Brothers and sisters, as we have learned in this book, whether it's Peter jailed, whether it's Paul on house arrest, the word of God is never bound. That should comfort us. 
embolden us to move forward in trusting. So understanding that the word is never bound requires us to trust Christ no matter how dire the situation might be. And this can, can take its form in various ways. It can happen whether the culture's changing. And oh, don't we see the culture changing. This actually could be opportunity for us. As persecution abounds in, in other areas of the world, we find that the church is flourishing. Maybe it's your sickness. Your sickness is an opportunity for the gospel Opportunity even as the gates of hell seek to shut us down, but Christ reminds us that they will never prevail. And really, that's how the story goes. The church struggling, but yet not hindered. So how did the story keep on going? I, I, I don't have enough time to take us to today. But church history tells us that Paul was released after two years, and he made it to Spain. The gospel advanced just a little bit further. By AD 64, Nero had gotten a little more angry. The culture began to change. A fire was set, uh, set in Rome, and it was blamed upon the Christians unjustly, and therefore it kind of gave... Um, carte blanche to the, to the people to persecute the Christians. And Nero did some horrific things, including killing both Peter and Paul. You might say, that's bad news. No, the gospel just flourished. Even though by AD 90, all the apostles had been martyred, with the apostle John the last being left to die on an island but through all that, the foundation of the church had been laid. Christ Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And it's until this day that the gospel slowly spreads through us, just being faithful to welcome all, to boldly preach Christ, and to faithfully trust him. So that's what we're doing right. That's what we're calling us to what the scriptures have called us to. These are the implications of this book. And we're 2,000 years later of this great story. And yeah, there's, there's points of, of peaks, but most of the time it's just steady going. And so I want to exhort us as a church to keep moving forward. And how do we do that? We keep our eyes set for the day, fixed by the Father's own authority by which that one who is taken up in the clouds, we will see him again. And we do this often through taking the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to close our time this morning. Pastor Jamin's going to come up, the, the band are going to lead us, and Jamin's going to lead us in taking the Lord's Supper where we remember the victory that came through death. And we do this, the Lord instructed us, until He returns. Let me pray for us, and with that mindset, we will take the Lord's Supper. Dear Father, 